with a quantum computer you could simulate the behavior of the matter not using uh, formulas or approximation and so on. A quantum computer can behave like matter, really, at the fundamental level. And so you can really simulate how atoms, how molecules work directly and without approximations on a quantum computer. If we manage to do that, that would be a gigantic step forward. For many things, and artificial intelligence is one of them, but there are also other, I mean, real quantum mechanics, we have the formulas. We have the formulas. And we really need this huge boost in computational capability to be able to apply them. You're listening to Widdishian's podcast, where we take the ultimate sci-fi themes found in books and movies and discuss them with the world's leading scientists, engineers, and experts. This week's podcast is brought to you by our sponsors and preferred retailers, where we in the book depository. And the book whose theme we're reflecting on this week is The Quantum Spy by David Ignatius. Now, it's a hyper-fast quantum computer. It's based on the story about a hyper-fast quantum computer that is the digital equivalent of a nuclear bomb. Whoever possesses one will be able to shred any encryption and break any code in existence. The winner of the race in this story will have built the world's first quantum machine that will attain global dominance for generations to come. The question is, though, who's going to cross the finish line? The US... China. The link to the Quantum Spy can be found in the show notes. My name is Amy Rose, and in this episode, I have a conversation with Dr. Federico Carminati, who is working in CERN Open Lab to investigate potential applications of machine learning and quantum computing for high energy physics as a chief innovation officer. Dr. Federico Carminati. Let's just start. I just want to know a little bit about how you got where you are now. I know it's it's probably a huge story because I've gone through so many of your bios and it's been <laughs> you, you've been in this. So I think what like I want to know how you got. I want to go back to when you were a child. How did you come into this science space? Like, did you were you interested? in it as a child or were you just working as a labourer one day on a construction site? Oh, and okay, that, that, <laughs> that is, uh, <laughs> that is a st- when I was a child, I, uh, when I was growing up as a teenager, I really wanted to be a biologist. That was my dream. Mm-hmm. And I started studying biology. I took university books of biology and then I started to make preparations for the microscope and then I became knowledgeable in uh, coloring the, the tissues of flies and ants uh, to, to see the nuclei of the cells. And uh, I had a small uh, chemical lab where I was doing all these things. And uh, How old were you when you had your chemical lab? 
Oh, from 14, I got my dad bought me my first microscope at 14. So 15, 16, 17, I, I became pretty good at doing these things. So, and manipulating the colorants and the things to dyes for dyeing cells and may put into, so you could see the nuclei with a different color and all these beautiful things. And then somehow, I don't know, I decided I wanted to do something more intellectually difficult because, I mean, that was my assessment at the time. I was, I was young and very naive. So I thought that, <laughs> that uh, biology was not so intellectually challenging. And by the way, I've always been very good in math. So I never had any problem with math. Math is the one subject that I never had to study when I was in high school because it just came naturally to me. So I decided, uh, and math, but math looked to me a bit abstract. And so I mm. said, uh, why not physics that has uh, this connection between math and our physical world and reality and so on. So that's how I started physics. Okay, but that was a long time ago. That was, oh yes, that's a very long time ago. How did you get to be working at, at CERN Open Lab? And you've been there for so long. Yeah, and I mean, the, soon out of university, I looked for a job. And the first offer in the field of experimentally high energy physics was at the Los Alamos National Laboratories. And then I left for Los Alamos. By the way, I was a bit pressed to find a job because my wife was pregnant and uh, we needed to make a living. So we went to Los Alamos and I started working there. And this is where my first daughter was born, by the way, she's American citizen by birth. So, and so I worked for one year at Los Alamos, but then I really heard about these fantastic experiments at CERN and so on. So I wanted to, I was really dreaming to come to CERN to work because, you know, this is considered the best, and it is actually the best place where to mm. do high energy physics. So, so what I did, I, I did the, the longest possible shot. I wrote a letter to a Nobel Prize. I wrote a letter to Samuel Ting. And I said, uh, essentially, I said, it was like a letter to Father Christmas, really. I said, I like your experiment. <laughs> I would like to work with you. And here I am. And the incredible thing is that for, well, in fact, it was my wife who insisted that I wrote thing. And I was resisting, said, look, this is a ridiculous long shot. That's not <laughs> the way you do things and so on. And she shouted at me. And so at the end, I caved in and said, okay, let me write this letter. It would be useless, but okay, it's a letter. So I wrote this letter <laughs> to Ting. And uh, one month later, Ting wrote me back and said, uh, your curriculum is very interesting. Call me. And I was absolutely <gasps> shocking. I was, oh, oh. I was absolutely trembling calling Ting. And he said, what are you good at? Software or hardware? I said, well, I mean, uh, good, good, but software rather. So I said, okay, call Harvey Newman at the California Institute of Technology, which is an extremely high level institution. So I called Harvey and Professor Newman, of course, at the time, but then we became friends and he hired me at Caltech. But they needed someone at CERN. So I was a Caltech staff member, but I was working at CERN, actually. And after one year working at CERN, I got noticed, and CERN offered me a job. And that was 1985. Yeah, yeah it's been a very long time. So yeah, you've, yeah. you've worked on so many different things there. So what are you working on at the moment? At the moment, I am, uh, uh, as you know, chief innovation officer at the yeah. uh, CERN Open Lab. The story is the following. CERN is treating uh, computing in a very 
engineering way, if I can say so. So what CERN does, it buys the computer that are needed to do the job and installs them and so on. So, but we realized some time ago that with the increasing speed of development of computing technology, that was not really good enough because we needed really to see ahead what was coming and we needed to be able to work with companies to be able to explore the latest technologies and to work together to see which one of these technologies that are coming are more suited for our computing problem. And so 20 years ago, more or less, CERN Open Lab was established as a sort of a, of a public-private enterprise where we, we have deals with company where they offer us some confidential information, their new product, they offer us access to this, the new product so that we can test our code and we can assess whether these products may be useful to solve our always present problem of computing resources. And for them, and it's a good deal for both of us because it's a good deal for us because, of course, we get access to new technology. We get access to their experts, which is something which is very difficult. If you come in as a customer, there are so many barriers before you get to the real guy or real girl who really does the job. But with this kind of advanced collaboration agreement, we really have access to the people who know who are developing the products. And for them, it's an extremely good deal too, because we have very challenging problems. And we used to say that high energy physics computing today is where a normal computing will be tomorrow. So we are really pushing the edge of the boundary. And for them, it's very useful because it is, uh, we are very I like to call us lightweight customers in the sense that we don't complain if they let us try something, if it works fantastic, if it doesn't work, okay, let's try to fix it together. So we have a very research and development attitude so we can talk to these people. So you see a lot of very incredible things coming through your door then that you you try and solve some of the problems from these other companies? Is, is that what you're saying? You've got... Well, what I'm saying is that these companies, they come in and say, we have a very good product that is coming. And uh, mm-hmm. we, sh- we are sure that this will solve your problems. And what I'm saying is that, well, let's try. We come with our code, with our problems, and let's see if, you, if what you're proposing is a real solution. If... Uh, <laughs> Jokingly, but up to a certain point, I always tell them our motto is you make it, we break it. Because, um, (laughs) (laughs) because Because you do. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a lot of fun, by the way, as you understand. Okay. You can imagine, I can imagine. Because they come in with this very new and sophisticated and, and fantastic new pieces of equipment. And, and we pro- always propose problems that pushes the boundary and that really go to the limit of what they can do. So for them, it's a very good training and benchmark. Can you elaborate on these problems, though? So you've got, are you talking about the quantum computing problems? Or are you talking about mathematical problems or what problems are you trying to solve? I'm really talking about big data manipulation mm-hmm. and analysis because uh, we produce a lot of data. We produce tens of petabytes per year of data and we need to analyze this data. And uh, all the figures that you see is not what we would like to do, but what we are forced to do by the limitation of technology. So we produce, in fact, we produce 
thousand times more data, one million times more data. But we have to limit what we record and what we analyze because the computing technology does not follow. So we artificially throttle our detectors. And by the way, in the next 20 years, there will be an increase of our computing need by a factor 100 that even if in the most optimistic uh, provisions forecast of the improvement of the computing facilities and computing technology will still be short of a factor 10 with respect to our needs. Is that why there's such a strong race to get the first quantum computer, I guess, mass producible, I don't know the right term for it, quantum computer on the market? Because there is this big need coming Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's um, the quantum computing technology, if could provide a huge improvement in the computing, the power of computation. But uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. there are two main problems that it is impossible or very difficult to translate the algorithm that run on normal computers onto quantum computers, you have to invent new algorithms that exploit the specific features of quantum computing. And the second thing is that we still don't know whether quantum computing will really come or not as a, and in which form it will come, because there is a fundamental technological limitation of the current quantum computers that simply they are not stable enough. The qubits, they do not maintain their state for long enough, and after uh, sometimes, which at the moment is very short, they interact with the environment and they are overwhelmed by noise and their status change in an unpredictable way. So essentially, we are faced by two problems. The instability of the current technologies, and this is not something we are working on because we are not developing ourselves quantum computers. And the other thing is to find intelligent ways to use this incredible intrinsic computing power that they have, but we have to invent a new algorithm to do that. And this is what we are looking into. So you're currently trying to figure out what this new algorithm might be to make quantum Correct. computers work? Correct. Okay. And how close are you to that? It is not a zero or one process. We have some interesting results. And for instance, working with a group from Wisconsin University, we have managed to reproduce some of the analysis for the Higgs boson on a quantum computer. We are not, for the moment, we are not exceeding the performance or we're not even reaching the performance of normal computers, but at least we demonstrated that it can be done. And if quantum computers would grow in power and stability, that would certainly be something that we would be ready to run with. Other things we are trying to do, we are trying to do data reconstruction with quantum computers and we are looking into, we're working for quantum machine learning, which is an extremely interesting branch, joining artificial intelligence and quantum computing. And this could be very effective for some kind of analysis. And what are some applications that us humans, us mere humans, could benefit from having quantum computers and machine learning and AI all joined together? What would be the benefit? 
The benefit is that some application will become much faster. So, for instance, in uh, AI, there is a problem in the utilization of, we believe that we could uh, reach even more interesting results with artificial intelligence and machine learning using deeper and deeper networks. But the usage of these deep networks is hampered by the fact that it's difficult to train them. You have a humongous amount of parameters to operate. Optimize. Now, optimizing them with normal computers, you, with classical computers, is really the bottleneck. In some sense, the neural network is very fast once you have trained it. But to train the neural network is a slow process because it is intrinsically an optimization process. A quantum computer could allow you to train a neural network much faster and even much better. So, for instance, in in this case, one could imagine a very important application in the field of medicine, in the field of uh, earth observation, disaster forecast, uh, and and so on and so forth. Because the possibility of uh, artificial intelligence have always been historically, you know, artificial intelligence is a very old idea. It was an idea of of, uh, 40 years ago. 40 years ago, they started talking about artificial intelligence. Even before. And it's it's everywhere now as well. It's normal now. Yeah, but this happens from time to time. If you go back in time, every few years, there is a spike in artificial intelligence, okay? Because there is a new generation of computers that give you more speed. So people who are doing artificial intelligence get excited again and say, oh, now finally we can do this. Finally we can do this because we were always limited by computing good computing power. I remember I was uh, working in a commission with, uh, in, in a committee with the Nobel Prize Carlo Rubia back in 86, 87, and uh, we were interviewing the world experts in artificial intelligence, and they were telling us, you know, we know what to do. Our only limitation is computing power. So we have just to sit and wait for better and faster computers. Now, with quantum computers, we can hope really to make the next step and train really deep network that will give a big boost to artificial intelligence. So essentially, once you do crack this algorithm, which you seem to be making some massive strides into, it seems like it will coincide with the big developments in AI. So we're looking down the tunnel at what could be a massive shift in the tech space and the physics space as well. They could both join together and we could be looking at, wow, around the same time as well. Absolutely. You must be super excited. How are you How are you <laughs> not just running around like a crazy man? <laughs> because you're working with both of these, both sides of these. You're working with quantum computing and machine learning. So you know yes. exactly what the applications will be. What are some of the examples? What can we, like, are we going to see robots running around or? Uh, this is very difficult to, I mean, First of all, I think that we have not yet understood how the human brain works. So to reproduce a really artificial intelligence, it I don't think is still on the horizon because I think there are things we really do not understand of the basic nervous system. That, so 
I don't see this happening very soon unless there is very some huge breakthrough. But uh, you understand there is an enormous amount of data. You know, the sensors are really cheap. For $18, you get 36 sensors to use with your microcomputer, okay, which measure temperature, air pressure, they measure humidity, they measure GPS, uh, electronic compasses, and so on. So you can measure everything. Uh, But this created deluge of data, and this deluge of data, we we do not know how to handle it, and this could contain very important information for climate evolution, for disaster relief, for uh, automatic driving of cars, for, uh, I mean, we can really imagine to optimize a lot of aspects of our life, energy consumption, for instance, we could try to optimize energy consumption or, or regulate traffic or all these huge problems that now we attack it in a heuristic way. Medicine, the study of medicine, you realize that medicine is still is not into the big data revolution. We cannot today, we cannot say, let's look at all the data of all the patients which have a given illness in the world and see what is the best way to cure them. There are practical problems, which are the sensitivity of the data, to which, by the way, quantum computing could help because that quantum mm. computing could help mm. encrypting this data so that they can be analyzed and without breaking the sensitivity and the privacy of the data. And machine learning could help really to make giant strides in, in medicine and everything which is related to health. Well, that's why I'm thinking that with these, with machine learning and AI obviously hand in hand, but with quantum computing, every industry will be affected essentially because we need, you know, like agriculture and you'll have all the sensors and we're, yeah, I can just imagine that the whole world itself in every industry will be. And then there is another extremely. Oh, I just really <laughs> extremely exciting perspective with quantum computers. You understand that the basic working of our world is quantum. So everything we see exists because there is the matter at the fundamental level is behaving in a quantum way. With a quantum computer, you could simulate the behavior of the matter not using uh, formulas or approximation and so on. A quantum computer can behave like matter really, at the fundamental level. And so you can really simulate how atoms, how molecules work directly and without approximations on a quantum computer. If we manage to do that, that would be a gigantic step forward because you could simulate, uh, we are very far from that, of course, but with enough power, you could simulate uh, the materials directly from basic principles. So that may lead to the discovery of new materials, of new drugs, uh, of a whole host of new technologies that you finally can simulate from basic principles. Yeah, I was speaking to one of my guests about his developing invisibility cloaking and said, until we have some serious computing power and and also some we're not going to be able to develop the actual fabric that we require he, he said look you can get it you could probably eventually uncover the mystery that we need to solve with the materials to make invisibility cloaking because the mathematics exists and the physics but as soon as i guess what you're working on comes into fruition we're going to see probably things like invisibility cloaking, things that we can't even imagine, which is awesome. Absolutely, because for many things, and artificial intelligence is one of them, but there are also other, I mean, real quantum mechanics, we have the formulas. 
we have the formats. And we really need this huge boost in computation capability to be able to apply them. And a lot of people, a lot of the things that I guess you work on, you need these simulations to be able to really decide whether or not something's going to work or not. And you need something really superpowered. Is that what you're saying? To Half of our computing, so first of all, imagine that we have one million of cores that are running 24 hours by seven days a week, continuously all over the world to analyze our data. And this is not what we need. This is what we have been given because, you know, the compute, I mean, the public funding for research is what it is. We, I think we are generously funded, but of course we would need much more. Half of this is simulation. Simulation is really okay. of extreme importance for us. And by the mm. way, now we are in a situation with physics, which is a very strange situation and people from the outside, they maybe do not appreciate completely. We are stuck with two theories. One is general relativity, which is the theories of stars and galaxies and so on. And the other is quantum mechanics. The trouble with these two theories is that there is no way to put them together. All their predictions are born true. So there is no fault that we can see with either. But we know these are not the final theory because they don't go together. I mean, and there is one nature, not two natures. So these two theories have to meet at some point. And we have absolutely all the theoretical attempts to join them together. They create uh, some funny monster that is not very nice uh, intellectually or aesthetically. The problem is that physics has always progressed because a theory is found to be at fault in some place. And then this theory has to be upgraded with a new theory that explains everything which was explained by the old one and explain this new fact that has come about. And usually when this happens, usually this new theory is uh, gives you new horizons of new effects and so on. For instance, when they put together magnetism and electricity, which seem to be two different things, when finally Maxwell put them together, people said, oh, but then... According to this theory, you could have electromagnetic waves. And then they started looking Mm. into that and they invented the radio because they (laughs) saw that you could send waves Mm. into the empty space. That's how the radio was invented because people looked at the the form and said, wait, wait a minute. But if this is true, that means that there are new phenomena we didn't see. Now, the problem with physics today is that there is absolutely nothing contradicting these two theories. There are a lot of mysteries that these two theories do not have an answer to. And so we are a bit stuck. So what are we doing? We are looking desperately for something that proves one of these two theories is wrong so that we can say, oh, this is maybe the new theory that explains these new facts and so on. So in general relativity, everything works well. In quantum mechanics also. So we are looking for very subtle effects that contradicts this theory. So which means more data, analyze much faster the data and using algorithms even more sophisticated to analyze this data. That's why we need, we are exploring the boundary of artificial intelligence and quantum computing. Really to find this, our theories at fault, it may seem absurd for a scientist, but this is really what we want to do. We want to find our theories at fault to see how to progress and to create new theories that give us answers to the unsolved mysteries of the universe. And I feel like there's a lot of people who are waiting for you to do that. (laughs) 
<laughs> and waiting for you to emerge. I had a talk with a gentleman named Seth Shostak, and he is sending, or not sending signals out to space. He's waiting to receive a signal from extraterrestrials. Uh-huh. And so they're recording a lot of data, but they don't have the capacity to save any of this data. So they get to analyse it while it's there, but they can't store it. And what he was saying is if we have quantum computers and when they come, we will be able to analyse the data that we would have received 10 years ago because it could actually be that these extraterrestrials are sending a message every 10 years and it might... It might be a sentence after 20, you know, after like 50 years. You get We don't know because we don't have any way to store this stuff or to analyze this stuff because we just don't have the computing power. This is also our problem because, for instance, we cannot, as I told you before, we cannot store all the data. We, we would be recording at petabytes per second. So we filter our data, okay? But we filter our data with algorithms, and our filter is as good as our computers are. Imagine if we could have much more intelligent filters. We could do a full analysis on the data on the flight. By the way, there are some oh, people who are, yeah. who are trying to do this in a very intelligent way. There is a new idea that is coming out now. I don't know if we'll be successful or not. And people are trying to say, instead of filtering, because up to now we filtered all the data that looked interesting to analyze. Mm. And then some people say, look, let's do the opposite. Let's use machine learning on the flight to filter the data that looks funny, that looks like anomalous. So let's see if, yeah. if we invert the logic, if we discover something there. That sounds really hopeful. Sounds great. Are you positive about that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and also, you know, there are new ideas. For instance, you understand that when we record the data, we record the passage of particles into a massive detector. And it is like looking at the big 3D camera. Essentially, it's a big 3D camera with pixels everywhere. And we thread the particle trajectories through the signals. And then we painfully recognize and reconstruct every particle, giving them a nature and an identifier and giving them a speed and a direction. And then from there, we see whether these particles, they correspond to, let's say, the disintegration of a Higgs boson. And then if they respond to this, we say, okay, wow, we found the pieces of a Higgs boson and so on. But it is a a very cognitive process. And some people have suggested, why don't we use machine learning to look at the data as they come out? Okay, they are just electronic signals blurted out by a detector. But the old information is there. Why we should go through this anthropomorphic uh, process of making trajectories, giving names to particles, and, and so on and so forth? Let's artificial intelligence look at the raw data as they come out from the detectors, and let's see if there is something there that we can identify. And that would have enormous consequences also outside energy physics. For instance, if you suppose you have a pressure, wind direction, and temperature sensor somewhere that detects the arrival of a cyclone or whatever, okay? Right now, mm. we pretend to calibrate the temperature, calibrate the wind direction, knowing where it comes, calibrate the wind speed, and so on. But if you had just let machine learning, you don't even bother to say how many degrees Celsius and uh, what is the angle and so on. Machine learning go, uh, analyze the data and it will tell you if something is anomalous and if, if something bad is coming without even interpreting or unpacking the data because machine learning will do it for you because the information is there. 
it sounds a little bit like machine learning and artificial intelligence might solve some of the problems that we have with quantum computing and then it'll all be solved and then they'll work together and then and it might actually be the first the way in which people predict that AI will take over the world it'll solve the problem of quantum computing and get the ball rolling. But then it comes the big problem of the ethical side of it. So how much Mm. we want to give up control? Because at the end, who takes the big decisions and why? Yeah. So when you're doing the machine learning side of things, are you working on implanting ethics into these machines? Is that something you're interested in? No, but we are not because you understand we have the big privilege that any decision mm. has no ethic consequences in our world. Okay. So, I mean, if you, yeah. if you, okay, if you find or do not find the Higgs boson, that is very marginally ethical. Okay, you have thrown away taxpayers' money. That's the only far ethics consideration, okay? But, uh, but for other things, there are really important ethical considerations. Suppose, I mean, I don't know if you know how the AlphaGo story, if you heard it in the newspapers and so on. The famous Google AlphaGo story. Oh, <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> okay, you, you read about it. Yeah. Okay, the interesting thing, okay, this is a Go game, so there is no ethical consideration in it. But the interesting mm. thing is that what happened is that the machine started winning. Then the machine made a move that was very damaging, and the machine started losing. And then the machine came into the position where it, where it won. Now, big question yeah. is that, was the machine clever enough to understand that it had to do a sacrifice move, which doesn't exist in Go, but maybe the machine has invented the concept. You know, sacrifice move is like in chess when you sacrifice a very precious piece, but to gain yeah. a position where you, where you win the game, okay? Sometimes you can sacrifice your queen, but then you get in the position where you win the game. So this is sacrifice. Yeah. But in Go, there is, there was never the concept of sacrifice was that does not exist. So was the machine just lucky in the sense that it was good for some time and then bad and very good and it won? Or was the machine Machiavellic and uh, it decided to implement this strategy? We will never know. This is the debate, isn't it? Exactly. (laughs) A lot of people think that it was absolutely smart enough. Suppose you're a doctor. Suppose that you're using a machine to help you in deciding a therapy. Suppose you have a patient in a serious condition. The machines tell you, give him four times the maximum dose of this medicine. So what do you do? Mm-hmm. You cannot ask the machine why. machine has no why. The machine only has, uh, has certain circuits. You can reconstruct, if you want, the path to that decision. But that does not give a rational why. That gives you a bunch of, of weights and of neurons that have clicked together to give you this answer. So if you're a doctor, what do you do? Trust the machine and give four times and then the patient dies and you say, okay, the machine told me, but is that is that acceptable? Or you don't trust the machine and the patient dies and then you said, well, I mean, my conscience told me not to trust the machine. So where is the boundary? Where is the boundary? And that, mm. that is really a difficult situation, I think. And that worrisome debate that everyone's coming to at the moment, because there is a lot of talk about ethics. It brings me to one of my last questions. With quantum computing, there is a bit of a race. And what would happen if one country had the monopoly on quantum computing? I mean, that would be incredibly powerful. What do you think this would mean for the world? If it is kept secret... Then, actually, there are a number of evil things I could think of in the sense that joining quantum computing 
and which is very good in finding minima and so on and in optimization problems you can you can imagine the design of arms uh, you can design the imagine of very refined strategies for instance social media manipulation well we've seen it with the American elections, elections and how much how much yeah. has been pervasive. You can think of uh, breaking security codes. Quantum computing is particularly effective in breaking encryption. Or, uh, for instance, uh, with quantum computing, you can try all the possible passwords for getting into a computer very quickly and so on. So if really one country would be able to develop a workable quantum computer and manage to keep it secret, the point is that this never happened in history. In, in the sense that even the atomic bomb, even the Manhattan Project, when the cat is out of the box, usually the other people get there anyway. There have been a lot of examples in history of uh, parallel discoveries and so on. So at some point, uh, things are ripe, and at some point, uh, things happen. There can be one uh, technological edge for some time, but it doesn't last long. I mean, if you, if you think about the major inventions that we had, the transistor, you could say the same thing for transistors or for airplanes or, or for atomic bombs or for many other things. At, at some point, it, shares, it spreads very quickly. So I would not so, be worried about that. The point is that every time we have a new technology, it takes some time to understand how to use it and how to use it safely. And uh, it takes some time to understand what are the full ethical implications. And there, there could be some collateral damage. But, you know, this is evolution. One of the things that I wanted to ask you, I didn't have it in my list of questions, but I know a little bit about blockchain. And some people are saying that when quantum computers really come out, I mean, even if it takes 50 years or something, they will be able to decrypt like the Bitcoin blockchain to the point where they could access the private keys and and all the funds. Do you think that that's possible or do you know anything about that? Yes. Well, the usual answer is Today's encryption is largely based on uh, the fact of uh, that it's very difficult to find uh, the factors of a very, very large factors of a very large number. So it will take a huge amount of time. Unfortunately, one of the first good algorithms for quantum computing was to find the factors of a very large number. Okay. So that is a done deal. Okay, that is the sole problem. So that would break absolutely all the kind of encryptions that are based on this. However. The quantum computer could also develop kind of encryptions which cannot be broken by a quantum computer. Like a classical computer can develop kind, some kind of encryption which cannot be broken by a classical computer. So I think the quantum computing will be at the same time the illness and the cure for that. Because with quantum computer, you could devise new ways of encrypting, which require, of course, they're much more computationally heavy. But hey, with a quantum computer, you have all the horsepower you need. So I think that while it is completely true that quantum computers can break a lot of current encrypting algorithms, they can also implement new encrypting algorithms which are more solid. And by the way, you know that already now it is possible over limited distance to use quantum encryption, which means that using very basic quantum mechanics properties, you can use entangled state, how we call them in quantum mechanics, which do not necessarily protect your data for the moment, but they tell you with absolute certainty whether your data has been violated or not. If someone has yeah. read your data along the way, you know with 100% certainty. 
And that is something, this is the quantum key distribution, and this is something which there are even companies that are doing this. Unfortunately, for the moment, only on short distances, but this is just a question mm. of a technological thing. Wow, it's so exciting. Like, How far away do you think it is to have a commercialized quantum computer? This is the big question. This is the big question. Yeah. I would say, given the money that flows in, and given the pace of development, I would say that we are in an order of magnitude of a decade. I think in a decade we will really have commercial quantum computers. Oh, but it all what? depends. That's if so the, exciting. Oh, yes. Oh, my God, I think that's it, so soon. I think mm. it won't take much longer than that. But it all depends whether there is a, a real breakthrough. Look, if there is a real breakthrough tomorrow, in two years they are on the floor. Because we know a lot of things. The theory has been studied thoroughly. There are already some very good algorithms. And the only question, the only real question, really to have very stable qubits. If we had very stable qubits isolated from noise from the environment, then, I mean, it could go very fast. But at the moment, we are really stuck by a technological problem. You know, you are treating with things that are very, 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 very sensitive to anything and to noise. And once you break this magic state of entanglement of qubits, you have lost all the power of the quantum computer. Well, I'm, I'm guessing that this machine learning might solve some of these or see some of these little gold nuggets that you're after to solve some of these quantum computing problems. <laughs> I am so hopeful, Federico. You have no idea. But I need to close and I would love to ask you because now we know that probably, well, now I know, very excited, that after around 10 years we will have some quantum computing which which will collaborate with artificial intelligence and machine learning. What is a technology that you think will exist in the future that we probably couldn't even imagine right now? I think we can make an enormous strides in new materials, mm -hmm. which I think would be very, very, very important, and uh, particularly energy-efficient new materials. That would help a lot. And I have great hopes in what can be done in the field of medicine, because I think that the medical data are there, but they've not been still exploited as they could. I particularly awful for the healthcare, uh, healthcare system. And the other thing which could be very important is, the, is everything that has to do with early detection of what everything it has to do with safety and so on. Because with the data, you could detect very early when something goes wrong in a large industrial installation or something like this. So the rest, one could imagine also many other applications, of course, but the rest is a little bit, depends also on politics, on how people want to share or do not want to share information and so on. But I think medicine and the discovery of new materials, and of course, when I say discovery of new materials, that is the, the sky's the limit because you can imagine more efficient uh, batteries, you can imagine materials that can stand higher temperatures or stresses and so on. So they can revolutionize transport, they can revolutionize many things. And the thing mm -hmm. there, there is still a lot to be discovered. And why not? Also, basic scientific knowledge. I have big hopes for my own field that this increased amount of computing could help us to really solve some of the riddles that we still have. I feel like the Cancer Councils and the Cancer Foundation should actually be in investing more in quantum computing than the scientists trying to uncover <laughs> cures. 
Yeah. Because really it could actually essentially cure cancers once it's all out in the commercial world and scientists are using it. Well, I think that medicine perhaps will be one of the areas that would profit most and most readily. And everything that has to do also with genetic therapies, because there there is a lot of space for really for solving some fundamental problems. We are discovering more and more about genetics, but st- even there we are limited by the ability of analyzing the data. And we still do not understand many things about the basic physiology processes. And uh, maybe have a better understanding uh, with coupled with artificial intelligence of the functioning of our mind, because this is also, I, I don't know if you have read on my several CVs that I'm also a psychoanalyst, so I'm very interested also on that, <laughs> whether this could help to us to understand really some basic mechanism of our mind. Is that one of the more interesting aspects of your work, though? It seems like it's a massive discovery if well this is very far-fetched and is not my day job of course i mean i could not do this at cern because this is not what may mandate but certainly as a scientist as a psychoanalyst also i, I think that uh, there is such a gap between the physical sciences and everything that has to do with our mind and after all it seems to be a natural because after all we perceive and we know the universe and we know also science through our mind so i think that uh, it would be interesting to see whether science could give us some better hint on how our own mind works. I think this could be very helpful. Mm, And it might also be a little bit sad (laughs) that a lot of the things (laughs) that we experience, we just make up ourselves to make ourselves happy. (laughs) It's all a dream maybe. Who knows? Well, you know, as long as you know it is a dream, why not? (laughs) Yeah, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) Well, Federico, thank you so much for joining me tonight. It has been all today in in where you are. Thank you so much. It's been amazing. It's been a pleasure talking to you. No problem. It was a pleasure. Have a lovely day. Have a nice evening for you. (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. for listening to this week's episode with Dr. Federico Carminati. It is the final episode in season three. The next season is coming up in just a couple of weeks and is all about aliens. So until next time, please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Stay safe, enjoy the company of your loved ones, and of course, enjoy the rabbit holes. Mm-hmm.